We'll be reading from Luke 12. Meanwhile, the crowds grew until thousands were milling about and stepping on each other. Jesus turned first to his disciples and warned them, Beware the yeast of the Pharisees, their hypocrisy. The time is coming when everything that is covered up will be revealed and all that is secret will be made known to all. Whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered behind closed doors will be shouted from the housetops for all to hear. Dear friends, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot do any more to you after that. But I'll tell you whom to fear. Fear God who has the power to kill you and then throw you into hell. Yes, he's the one to fear. What is the price of five sparrows? Two copper coins? Yet God does not forget a single one of them. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. I tell you the truth. Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge in the presence of God's angels. But anyone who denies me here on earth will be denied before God's angels. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemies the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when you are brought to trials in the synagogues and before rulers and authorities, don't worry about how to defend yourself or what to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. Hi folks, and a very warm welcome to you all. My name's Rick, and today we'll be continuing our series in Luke's Life of Jesus. Over the last while, we've been in Luke's massively extended account of Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem. As we saw, his two major concerns are, first of all, to demonstrate how God's compassionate grace was being shown to all kinds of people. It's staggeringly joyous stuff to see all of them being reconciled and restored to God and to one another, and this regardless of their sex, ethnicity or social status. At the same time, Luke is very clear that Jesus is hardly some kind of first century uber Mr. Rogers. Although he unhesitatingly welcomes all, as Israel's unique God among us, it is always on his terms, not ours. And that's where things get a little bit uncomfortable for them and for us. In the last few weeks, Jesus has said some particularly bracing and uncompromising stuff. This can come as a bit of a shock, especially in our culture, where tolerance is everything, offending is now the greatest sin, spirituality is DIY, and Jesus is more my personal trainer. But then, as we also saw earlier, one of Luke's high points was where Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. Whatever else, they and we need to own our complete little children dependence on a holy God. But it's also precisely because of a holy God's honour that we should never cease asking for God's friendly gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this sounds fabulous. Who wouldn't want it? Well, as C.S. Lewis once wrote in his Space Trilogy, what do you do when what you thought was going to be your moment of glorious justification, the moment for which you longed and worked so hard, when you would finally be vindicated against all your foes, turns out instead to be the moment of your greatest confusion, denunciation, and even shame. Welcome to the Pharisees and the scribes. They thought they had the corner on the God thing. 
But no, Jesus was not at all what they'd expected. It's why immediately after Jesus teaching his disciples to be persistent in asking for the gift of the Holy Spirit, they accused Jesus of being on the side of the ultimate unholiness, namely Satan. From this door-slamming moment, there really can be no backing down. And nor does Jesus. He warns them that their divided house cannot and will not stand, that whoever is not with him is against him, and whoever does not gather with him scatters. When it comes to Jesus, there is no middle ground. Now, I'm not sure how well this would go down in Ottawa, but it didn't go down at all well in Galilee. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He launches into a blistering, even offensive denunciation of Israel's God experts. He announces a series of woes, exactly the language used by Israel's prophets against an idolatrous Israel about to go into exile. It's kind of breathtaking, really, and certainly not the kind of gentle Jesus, meek and mild with which I grew up. It's no surprise, then, that chapter 11 concludes with the now very hostile Pharisees and scribes lying in wait to seize any opportunity to trap Jesus in his words. Luke doesn't say it, but it's obvious that they want to kill him. Why does Jesus say these kinds of things? I mean, my goodness. Well, on the one hand, it's because of who he is and what he brings. As the Lord among us, he is ushering in what Israel knew as the great and terrible day of the Lord. It was a time of purging judgment against those who perverted the Torah from a way of life and of good to bring death and evil. At the same time, the stakes are about as high as they can get. The Pharisees and scribes were, by and large, respected by the people, even if grudgingly. As authoritative leaders, they were meant to help folks better understand who God really is. In fact, in some ways, these are the folks who are closest to Jesus. He too cares about holiness, who God really is, and pays close attention to God's word. But what do you do when your authoritative leaders and teachers are themselves so full of darkness that they attribute the work of the Spirit to Satan? This is why Jesus does what only God can do. Stripping away their pious veneer, he reveals every hypocritical and even filthy secret, no matter how deeply hidden in their hearts. It's pretty bracing stuff. But his point is they are nothing like God and both they and the people need to know it. Now, as we've said before, to deal with the things of God is a huge responsibility and with it comes enormous accountability. And if I can speak personally, it's one of the reasons I find teaching and preaching such a grave obligation. It's why over the years, I've tended to become more and more inclined just to stay focused on the scriptures. I'm increasingly aware of how little I know, and more than that, whether I even know what right question to ask. These days, I have to say, it's more like, Lord, I don't really have a clue. So please just talk to me. And that's exactly what happens in this chapter. Following hard on the heels of this profound break and in the midst of a huge press of crowds around him, Jesus speaks first to his disciples. That is, not to outsiders, but to those who, like me and you, are committed to following him. 
And having spoken very strongly to the Pharisees and scribes, he's not apparently afraid to be frank with us. Just so we know where we are going, our text today has four basic units. Jesus begins with a bracing warning against hypocrisy. That's verses one through three, followed by another as to whom his disciples really should fear and what that looks like, verses four through seven. Then comes an equally solemn declaration of their need to acknowledge him, the son of man before others, and the unforgivable sin of blaspheming the spirit, verses eight through 10. And finally, a word of encouragement, verses 11 through 12, that when they're dragged before these very authorities, the same Holy Spirit will give them what they need to say. Well, needless to say, there's a lot here, but we'll do our best. So Jesus begins with a dire warning about the leaven of the Pharisees, which he says is their hypocrisy. Now, why do that? Well, whatever else, this suggests, at least to me, that it's of critical importance and a very real and very present danger, even for us. An historian of World War II once said to me, the world will never learn the lesson of that war until we realise that the vast majority of people who went along with the Nazis were normal, everyday, even educated folk, just like us. One of our great dangers in reading the Gospels is to caricature the Pharisees and the lawyers beyond all recognition, immediately followed by the implicit pious prayer, we thank you, Lord, that we are not like those dreadful sinners. But I have to remind myself, if Israel's God specialist can go so wrong, what makes me think that I, even if I am following the same Lord, might somehow be immune? Well, not so, according to Jesus, and as the long history of Christians behaving badly bears tragic witness. Hence, the very first thing he says is, keep yourselves from leaven, that is, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Now, there are several points here. Leaven is already a highly loaded word. Its significance goes all the way back to Israel's great defining moment of the Exodus and its Passover. They were commanded to ensure that no leaven was to be found in their houses and no one was to eat leavened bread on pain of being cut off from among God's people. That's Exodus 12. The same apparently applies to us. The leaven of hypocrisy will likewise see us excluded from among God's people, just as it did the Pharisees and the lawyers. So second, what does Jesus mean by hypocrisy? Well, at the very least, it seems to mean there's kinds of things that he denounced in the preceding woes. And that would include the Pharisees' internal darkness that led them to accuse Jesus of being in league with Satan. And who's Satan if not the self-exalting father of lies who comes to steal, to kill and to destroy? I suspect hypocrisy belongs squarely in that camp. And like leaven, it will eventually spread throughout the whole lump of our lives. Now, if this is true, nothing is more opposed to the character of God It's not just being dishonest, self-exalting, stealing and being careless with other people's lives. It's hiding this under a pretense of righteousness. What Jesus is talking about, I think, is a life that is consistent all the way down. To use Paul's language in 2 Corinthians, it's a life that like a piece of pottery you can take outside and hold up to the searchingly bright light of midday. No dissembling, 
no curating of appearances, not one life to some folks, another to others, and yet another to ourselves, no pretense, no trying to be what we are not. We mean what we say and we say what we mean. What you see is exactly what you get. Some of you might be familiar with the British comedy, Yes, Prime Minister. It has one episode where Sir Humphrey, the bumptious public servant, is invited onto a radio program to give an interview on unemployment. It's all perfectly scripted, carefully curated with no missteps. However, when the formal interview is over, he launches into what he really thinks of the unemployed. And unbeknownst to him, the tape is still rolling. Oh dear. As Jimmy Patterson is reputed to have told his senior staff, don't do or say anything today that you would not be happy to see on the front page of the Vancouver Sun tomorrow. For Jesus, he encourages us, instructs us to live our lives as though every microphone is live, every camera is still rolling. And remember, it only takes a little leaven to leaven the entire lump. Trust takes a lifetime to build and just one act of hypocrisy to destroy. In the end, Jesus says, everything will be brought into the open, nothing will remain hidden. That he says this four times only underlies its central importance. Now, of course, who does this better than Jesus? Putin, Justin, Biden, me, you? Of course not. Thirdly, this is why it's vital to recall that for us, this is so much more than mere personal integrity, let alone observing our cultural values. We are followers of Jesus. And on this point, he's uncompromising. We are either with him or against him. He is the standard, not my personal values. After all, in claiming to be his disciples, our lives put his reputation on the line. We either gather with him or hypocritically scatter. Think for a moment of all those Canadians who no longer go to church because of Christian hypocrisy. In fact, it seems to me that taking the name of the Lord in vain is probably less about expletives than claiming to be his disciple and not looking like him. So maybe it's always worth remembering before I say or do anything, how does this measure up to Jesus? Perhaps those much maligned what would Jesus do bands were not so far off the mark after all. Finally, this, Jesus says, is something we are to do. We are to stay alert. We are to take care that we don't get defiled by the leaven of hypocrisy. I suspect this is one reason why Paul says to Timothy, if a Christian leader persists in sin, they are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may fear. Whatever we do, we need to avoid this like the plague. It will not only exclude us from the kingdom of God, it will turn others away as well. Wow, this is pretty serious stuff. Right? How should we respond? What are we to do? Well, the very next thing Jesus talks about is fear. And remarkably, four times in very short order, he tells us whom we should fear. Oh, this is another surprise. Isn't the gospel all about grace? What's with this fear business? Well, remember our pearls on a string? None of this sequencing is accidental. What if Jesus' point is that at the bottom of all hypocrisy, of our pretense, self-importance and lack of transparency, if at the bottom of all of that lies fear? 
We fear others and we fear exposure. In Jesus' own words from John, it's because we crave the honour that comes from people. Recall the Pharisees' love of the best seats and honourable salutations. Jesus pulls no punches, and I have to say, I do like that about him. Yes, he says, there are those who can kill the body. The Pharisees and the lawyers are already aligning against him to do just that. He knows well that to speak uncomfortable truth to power, even in love, can readily meet with hostility, especially when it touches on someone's sense of identity, of who they think themselves to be. And why? I think because it's all about where my life resides. If my life lies with my standing before others, I have no choice but to respond defensively. And the more it touches on my core identity, the more lethal my response will be. Jesus tells us the only way to be free of that kind of deadly stuff, to keep ourselves away from that death-dealing leaven, not only to ourselves but to others, is to ensure that we fear the only one who should truly be feared. And that's the one who, having killed, can then cast into hell. Well, again, you know, this is to his language we don't really like to hear. It sounds a bit judgmental, right? Not very loving or tolerant. And after all, you know, we kind of have our own truth. And no way can God be violent. But what if Jesus is telling us the truth? What if at the bottom of the entire cosmos and more in the very core of the one who created and sustains everything lies something that beggars all of our myriad and tiny moral compasses? You know, I can leap from the top of a very tall building, railing against the oppression of gravity all the way down. But in the end, the only change in the entire universe will be just one less anti-gravity protester. If anyone knows about reality, it's going to be Jesus, right? His bona fides far exceed anything we've ever seen. But before we react, look again. First, did you see the change in how Jesus addresses his followers? He began with disciples, but now he calls them friends. And do note, this is also the first time he does so. This has got to indicate a significant change in tone. That is, Jesus' words here are not oppositionally defiant. It's not a way to get back at his opponents, seeking revenge for their rejecting him, which, if you'll forgive me, is sometimes how I think some followers of Jesus speak about hell. We'll get those sinners back for marginalising us. No, that's not what Jesus is doing. He's speaking to us as his friends. It's the insider language of deep commitment, intimacy and a self-giving love. So I think two things come out of this, if I may. First, I wonder if sometimes in our attempts to make God more accessible, relevant and friendly, we might unwittingly lose sight of the fact that we are still to reverence him. Jesus, being Jesus' friends and thereby God's, does not make us their equals. The church is not a Christian version of the village glee club. A holy awe and reverence for the Lord is not out of place. Second, and this is the very good news, having reordered our priorities around the one who really should be feared, Jesus now tells us not to be fearful. Well, how does that work? It works because the one whom we seek to honour and reverence above all is none other than Israel's unique Yahweh. That is, our fear of God, our reverencing of him, should be based on who he is. And he's the Lord who rescued Israel from Egypt 
who responded to their stiff-necked rebellion with entirely unmerited grace and compassion. He's the very same God to whom Jesus taught us to pray as Father, who knows our profound creaturely dependence in all things, and on the basis of whose own honour we can persistently pray with great confidence of a friendly answer for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Oh, and how did Jesus just address his disciples? Yes, as friends. Here is a God unlike any other deity, let alone authority figure. This Father is deeply concerned for us and knows us far better than we know ourselves. So do not be fearful. If he knows even the smallest birds whom the markets value so lightly, how much more does he know and value us? If we're going to reverence anyone, this Father is the one to reverence. And that brings us to the third section. Where must this hypocrisy avoiding not fearing men but instead fearlessly reverencing God necessarily lead? Jesus tells us to openly acknowledging him before others. At the same time, the contrast between before men and before the angels of God simply picks up on the preceding contrast between fearing men who can only kill and fearing the one who can both kill and cast into hell and before that, between the hypocrisy that comes from fearing men and avoiding it like the plague because instead we fear God. You see, what might have initially appeared as oddly unconnected sayings do in fact have a common thread. Jesus' disciples, that's including us, have to make a fundamental decision about who stands at the centre, Jesus or humans. And that decision needs to be expressed publicly. If in caring more about what me humans think of me, I deny him, and especially when I'm before the synagogues, the rulers and authorities, he will deny us in the only courtroom that really matters. Now, this too is bracing. But remember, Jesus is speaking to us as his friends. He's not trying to terrify us into submission. He's simply explaining how reality actually is. And again, if anyone's in any position to tell us about reality, it's him. Well, it should hardly come as a surprise that he responds like this. Throughout the gospel, Luke has again and again identified Jesus with Israel's unique God, Yahweh. This means eschewing the leaven of hypocrisy, fearing God and publicly acknowledging Jesus are one and the same thing. It's important to realise that Jesus is not a smaller, pocket-sized, triple-A, battery, toned-down, miniature version of God, nor, may I say worse, merely the greatest human teacher or king. He's none other than Israel's unique Lord among us. I think this is also why Jesus does not engage in Socratic dialogue so beloved of philosophers. He's not searching for the truth in a community via reasoned discussion with his peers. He is the truth. And we, even if his friends, are not his peers. And this too, I think, explains the strange saying which comes next. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. How does one make sense of that, given that Jesus has just said to deny me means that we will be denied before the angels of God? Well, I suspect the key lies in that strange expression, the Son of Man. And as the crowd's asking, John, so white me, who might we, who is this Son of Man? Well, it's not easy, and as one scholar once quipped, son of man, son of man, that way lies madness. Books on this topic could easily fill and do several small libraries, and we have very little time, so some quick points. 
The first thing to notice is that in the Gospels, this expression is used some 70 times, but only by Jesus when speaking of himself. And yet it's almost completely absent from the rest of the New Testament. Second, think about it. I meet you at Wendell's, you introduce yourself, and I respond, oh, I'm the son of man. At which point you immediately remember that you are late for a fictitious appointment and hurriedly excuse yourself. <laughs> what kind of nutter am I? But if you notice, no one in the Gospels reacts to this. No one says, what a nutter, nor does anyone say, wow, are you the son of man that Daniel prophesied? Third, then, the reason seems to be that this odd expression is very much like an everyday Aramaic way of talking about yourself. Yes, it is perhaps a tad emphatic in its pointing to the speaker, but not so much as to occasion comment. What seems to be going on then is that Jesus has chosen deliberately a slightly enigmatic title for himself, a title unlike Messiah or Son of God that carries no specific expectations. It's effectively empty as it were, which allows him to fill it with his own meaning. The underlying point is that no pre-existent Jewish title can do justice to all that Jesus really is. Fourth, it's precisely Jesus' filling of that title that does occasion very serious, even hostile reaction. Indeed, in the first two places where Jesus uses this title, in Luke, he attaches an authority that belongs only to Yahweh, to forgive sins and being Lord of the Sabbath. He's implying that he is none other than the Lord among them. Now, of course, he couldn't be that straight out or that would be the end right there. So he has to find a more indirect way. Well, if that's what's going on and the matter is understandably debated, then Jesus seems to be saying something like this. On the one hand, you might think that I'm just a slightly odd individual and that's one thing. But you don't have to look for too long to see that something much more serious is going on. This is about the Holy Spirit. Why does he talk about the Holy Spirit here? I think for two reasons. First of all, it's exactly what we saw earlier. Remember, Jesus had just concluded his teaching on prayer by encouraging his disciples to be persistent in praying for what? Yes, you're right, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then what happened next? The Pharisees immediately accused him of being in league with Satan. Second, the specific language of blaspheming the Holy Spirit occurs just once in Israel's scriptures. That's in Isaiah 63.10. Here the prophet remembers the first exodus. Any echoes of leaven there? When he sent his very own presence among them, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit and he became their enemy. Mm. In other words, the leaven-like hypocrisy of the darkened Pharisees will lead one ultimately to blaspheme the Holy Spirit with all of its dreadful consequences. Now, time has gone, but two quick words to finish up. Some of you might be wondering if you've ever blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Two things. You wouldn't be here if you had, and nor would you even care. The very fact that you are here and you are worried is the surest evidence that you haven't. Second, we've come to the final promise of Jesus to his disciples in verses 11 through 12. Yes, he says, there is a cost to following me. Because of your faithful acknowledgement of me, you may well find yourself facing lethal opposition, but do not be anxious. Not only can you be sure of your father's intimate awareness of all that's going on, 
But remember, this is not ultimately about you. It is much bigger. It's God's doing. And because this is about God's very own delivering presence through his Holy Spirit, that same graciously given Holy Spirit for whom you as my friend should persistently and expectingly ask, seek and knock, that same Holy Spirit will give you what to say. As Jesus once said elsewhere, in this world you will have trouble, but fear not, I have overcome the world. And he wasn't kidding. Today, more people own the name of Jesus than any other. So little children, to take the words of John, avoid hypocrisy and do not be afraid to own the name of the one who alone can fill us with the same Holy Spirit who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. Even if they kill us, we still win. Grace and peace.